Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Uh, and that will be our devotional reading today to start. There's a couple of paragraphs. Some people want to take turns. There's, you know, verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 11, uh, 12 through 14, that's 3, uh, 15 through 17, that's 4, and then 18 to the end of the chapter. So 5. We got 5 volunteers. I can do 1 too uh, if we need to. But. I'll start. You start? Who's got second? I'll take second. Steve is second. That puts a lot of pressure on Pepe for third. Yeah, but I, yes, he has it. Sure, there. Okay. <laughs> so you could do the third one, That's verses 12 through yeah. 13. Uh, I'll go 15 through 17. 15 through 17. And any last takers for 18 through 21? Okay, I'll, I'll do it then. All right. Let's, uh, let's read God's word and then we'll pray. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope, in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one who will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, one man and then through sin and so death spread to all men because all sin for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given but sin is not counted where there is no law yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sin was not like the transgressions of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come switching to the NIV but the gift is not like the trespass for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace 
and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a reading of God's word. And the part I want to focus in on here a little bit is back at verse 12, where it says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Um, and then again, verse, verses, uh, you see this in a couple of places, but again in verse 18, the connection is made here between um, Adam and Christ, or a comparison and contrast is made between the first man, Adam, and the first man in Christ. And he does so again here in verse 18. Therefore, as, as one trespass, one trespass, led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What's the one trespass that leads to condemnation for all men? What's that referring to? Adam's sin, the original sin. The original, sin. original sin in the garden, right? Yep. Okay. And then what's the one act of righteousness that leads to justification in life? Christ's death and resurrection. Yeah, that's, that's Christ, exactly. I'm going to sit down here because I... I don't need to stand, do I? So, uh, so we're going to talk today about the effect that Adam, Adam's sin had on all of us and a debate that then uh, happened in the early church. I say early church, but uh, 4th century. Um, we'll, get into, we'll get into this with uh, our, next, our next heretic and hero here. So... Uh, but with that, I want to kind of do a little recap. Everybody was here for most of the classes last time, right? So here's a quiz. Fun little quiz. We didn't take a final exam last time. So here's the quiz to finish last time. That would be the midterm. This is, well, that's true. After a long Christmas break. After the long yeah. <laughs> Christmas break. Yeah. All right, so... Um, See if you could stretch back. If you have some of your notes, you can look into these as well. Um, thinking back to the very early lesson, what were the main cultural, philosophical, or religious backgrounds to first century Christianity? And there were three of them. What were the main? Judaism. Roman. Judaism, yep. Jewish, Roman. Greek. And Greek, yep. What was anything you remember about the Jewish background? Anything that, why that influences Christianity? Everything Old Testament. Old Testament, yep. Yeah, the early Christians would have been a continuation of, you know, Old Testament Israel, right? Okay. Uh, you said Greek, right? Anything that, yeah. no, or did you say Greek? I said Greek? You said Greek, you said Roman. Roman. Anything about the Roman background? I have all my notes. 
Oh, well. <laughs> at least you you were honest until. Imperial cult. Oh yeah, that's right. I I forgot about that one. The Imperial Cult. Do you guys remember that? The Imperial Cult. What was that? Emperor worship. Okay. What else? What are the things you got in your notes? Bible revelations one to people uh, home churches had endured worship I don't know it's kind of random my notes that's I have, true I have Paul's teacher Gamaliel oh yeah yeah that'd be the Jewish background oh, yeah, yeah. 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 The, tif- the different uh, rabbinical schools yeah good so there was the Roman ones Greek ones You know, and this all play but do you remember anything from the Greek one that stood out to you Polytheism. Polytheism, yeah. They had the multiple deities, yeah. That's a good one. Anything else? Other contribution that Greek brought? The common language. Mm-hmm. Very good, yep. Yeah. Common language, because why Why the common language? How did that all come about? So, um, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, exactly. They wanted one language for the whole world. Wanted one whole language, and they, they called it Hellenization, right? Because the, the Greek word for Greek is not what we think. It's not Greek. It does, it's Helen. It doesn't be like, how do you get from Helen to Greek? But uh, so Helen, um, Hellenization, that's what it means. It means turning, turning things Greek, Greek language. And why is that important? Yeah, so you oh, you said read the Bible. So, I mean the Old Testament was in Greek? Mm-hmm. Septuagint. There was a translation of it, yeah, that was in Greek because of Hellenization. Yep. So, and all of the, so it was a common language that affected everybody, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Common Greek. Um, anything related to that? All right, here we go. So we'll move on to the next question. Uh, who were the first opponents of Christianity, or who were the first uh, uh, ones who were a threat to the gospel in the middle of the first century? The Judaizers? Judaizers, yeah. And what did the Judaizers try to do? They, uh, and, and why were they a threat, too? Okay, we'll stop there. Why were they such a threat to Christianity in particular at that point? And what what is it that they said? They had to, you had to follow the laws of, um, you, you had to become a Jew to be a follower of Jesus, basically. Yeah. So, follow laws, temple worship, all that stuff. Yeah. Get circumcised. Get circumcised, yeah. Uh, that was home group topic last night. <laughs> Here we are, back to it again. Um, so, what scriptures would you, uh, what, would, what were some of the main scriptures that dealt with it, that issue? That's actually a lot of them, but we, we looked at a couple. You remember? If you go, oh, the issue of Judaism, Judaizers, and circumcision, what, what book would I go to? to? Galatians. Galatians, yes, good. Yeah, Romans 2, yep. Um, Gnosticism, somebody define Gnosticism. Special, special knowledge. Special knowledge, yeah. Anybody remember the special knowledge? I don't have the special knowledge. You don't have the special knowledge? 
Pepe has a special knowledge. He's got all of his notes on there. Yeah, he got the notes, man. <laughs> secret. It was secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. Yeah. Special sauce, secret knowledge. <laughs> special sauce. <laughs> like it, Paul. I like it. So special knowledge was that we were all parts of the, what was it, the Demiurge, who was the one who created the world, and that there's one pure reason, and that we're all emanations of the pure reason, and we just have to come to realize that we're actually sparks of the divine. Is you guys remember that one? For the Gnosticism. Um, who was Marcion? And why was, uh, what did he teach and why was he important? Pepe. <laughs> Call him Pepe again. He was saying those, I had no Marcion. Marcion? No? He was a disciple of somebody. Paul? Was he Paul's? Or it was like one generation away from him. John? Is John the Baptist? No, John. Are thinking of Polycarp? Maybe that's yeah. right. You're thinking of Polycarp, I think. Okay. Yeah. Just give us the answer. Do you want me to give you the answer? But then it's just me talking. And that's you, fine. Jana was like, make sure there's discussion. Universally rejected. I'm trying to make sure there's discussion. What's that? Universally rejected. He was universally, almost universally rejected. So see if this uh, rings a bell. Then he rejected the Old Testament. As Christian, he he actually um, then he was going to pick and choose which books he thought were. He thought the Old Testament God was evil, and that the New Testament God in Jesus was was good. So he had a sharp distinction between Old Testament or anything Jewish and the New Testament and anything Christian. Um, so you remember when he he had some um, he he started to develop a following. And he would say, these scriptures are okay. Luke's gospel is okay. Matthew, no good. Why? Because it, it gave the uh, lineage of Jesus going back to the Old Testament. Yeah. It's too Jewish. Right. Matt, you know, Matthew was a little too Jewish. Luke was a Gentile, and he focused on Gentile things in there. So, okay. Um, what other books did he reject, Marcion reject? And actually, he cut out the birth narratives, I just remembered. Hey, Laura, we're having a quiz from last year. So jump on in with any time. Uh, so he took the birth narratives out of Luke. Uh, Galatians, he thought, was the best, and so he put that first in Paul's letters. He had all of Paul's letters except 1 Timothy and Titus. Um, he thought Paul was really the only true, true apostle. All the others were, again, too Jewish. So, sounds like he's a little anti-Semitic to me. Little anti-Semitic, probably. <laughs> it's kind of a pretty Greek yeah. name, isn't it, Marcion? Yeah. Yeah, Marcion. <laughs> yep. Pretty Hellenistic um, name. Mm -hmm. And we we see modern versions of Nar our Marcion, right? When there's anybody who makes a really hard distinction between Old Testament and New Testament, that the Old Testament uh, Old Testament God is is an evil God. We saw Brian McLaren. He actually writes a lot about this in one of his books. I forget which one. Um, not a new kind of Christian, a new kind of Christianity. Yeah, he talks about the difference between Elohim and Theos, and Elohim is an evil god that's wrathful and all of those things, and then there's Theos, which is the good god. It's uh, pretty Marcion. It's really crazy. 
Is uh, theos the Greek term for yep. God? Yep. So obviously he doesn't really know historically that theos was probably used in the Greek translation of yeah. the Old Testament. For Elohim. Right. <laughs> right. So yeah. he doesn't, but his books are extremely wrong already because yeah. he's not even correlating the two together. Exactly right. Yeah. That was his own, that was his own construction of framework to yeah. try and make it better. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, what was the big, what's the most significant outcome of the, the controversy with Marcion? Well, he was universally rejected, so. <laughs> he was universally rejected. Mm -hmm. What was uh, he was the one who really introduced the idea that some books of the Bible, some books of the New Testament writings were, should not be considered scripture. So the result of this, then, in the years following this, was to figure out well, which books are scripture, and then they we went, looked at the whole classification for how it is. What did what was it that met the criteria for being uh, a New Testament letter? Or to be classified as scripture. And I want to say that they, uh, they said, we're declaring this now to be scripture. They're saying, no, we've recognized a whole bunch of these as scripture already. Um, but now there's some debate about them and which ones are, are scripture. So they come together and they made uh, a final list of New Testament books. And that's largely the result of the Marcion controversy. So, Docetism. Do you remember what the word docetism means? It's from the word appear. It's from the Greek word to seem or to appear, to seem like. And so docetism denied the humanity of Jesus because he only appeared to look like a human. Remember docetism? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're bringing that back, yeah. So, um, who was the first Christian emperor? Augustine. Constantine. Constantine. And why was that important? And I put Christian in quotes, scare quotes, because he kind of, um, what did he, he ended up becoming, um, what did he do? I think he ended up becoming, um, Oh, um, I think he... Wasn't it Arianism? What was that? Was it an Arian? Arianism, yes, that's right, that's right. Um, so, who was Arianism? Who was Arius, and what is Arianism? What does it deny? Docetism decide, de denied the humanity of Jesus. Arianism denies... The deity of Jesus, at least the full deity of Jesus, at the very least, right? Um, uh, let's see here. Apollinarius, you remember Apollinarius and Apollinarianism? He denied the fullness of the humanity of Christ. wasn't wasn't totally exactly uh, human. Um, Sibelius. Anybody remember anything about Sibelius? Or the word modalism. 
So we're modal. Oh, that might. Is it on here? No. I, oh. I'm looking. Every time you say a word, I'm looking at the page. <laughs> we're getting close to this. The, this was the last lesson. We're getting close. Thanks. Thanks to the um, the YouTube video. I, mean, I remember modalism. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I it's in the. I only know it in like a Scottish accent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's modalism, Patrick. <laughs> I don't remember the line before it that is the definition of. Yeah. He, was, he was trying to. He was trying to do the analogy of the. Was it the shamrock or the? Three, yes. Three, clover. The, yes. Three, clover. Yeah. Um, yeah. So modalism is saying that God. Well, he shows up as God the Father, and then he puts on a different hat, and he shows up as God the Son. And yeah. Then... Oh, wait, doesn't he do that with the water one? The modalism, because then it's the same, because it, it's ice, or then it could be could, water, and then yeah. steam, because then it, it oh, changes. Yeah. It's yeah. all wa water's water. Yeah. So I think that's, I think it's the water yeah, one, that's, that's which would fit the modalism. It's the Father is the Son and is the Holy Spirit, right? So it's all, there's just one God. But he sh he appears and shows up as in different modes. So, patripassianism. What does that mean? It's connected to modalism. Crickets. Crickets. Patri and passion. These would be Latin terms. Father or something. Father, and then passion. What's it's the week before Easter is known as Passion Week. Why is that called? Why is it called Passion Week? That's the, the Latin phrase for passion is to suffer. So it's the suffering. So patripassionism is saying, well, actually on the cross, it was, there's no son. The father died on the cross because remember, it's connected to the moments. Oh, yeah. So patripassionism, okay. Um, yeah, uh, let's see. So, uh, let's see. Ebionism or Judaism denies the deity of Christ. Docetism denies the humanity of Christ. Arianism denies the fullness of the deity of Christ, which was the issue for Nicaea and the Nicene um, Council. 325-381. Apollinarius uh, denied the fullness of the humanity of Christ. Nestorius denied the unity of the natures in one person. Um, Eutychi, Eutychius denied the distinction in the natures of the person, which were some of the ones we looked at at the last one. And uh, Sibelius denied the distinction between the persons. You all passed. So thank good you. job. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your notes. Yeah, thank you. Good job, Pepe. D minus. <laughs> All right, today we're going to look at, uh, we're going to be looking at the period from, uh, what does it say at the top of your hand out there? Middle Ages. The Middle Ages. 400 to 1350. 400 to 1350. So we're going to cover a lot, of, uh, a lot of ground here. So we're going to look at two individuals in particular, and we're actually going to be looking at this one, particular, one person uh, for the next two weeks, at least three uh, may, I don't think for four. We'll probably do this person in all, um, cover him in three weeks. We usually spend about a week per person leading up to this. Uh, but this person is such a huge, massive figure in probably the first 
the first thousand years of church history, wow, I'd say for a thousand years of church history, he is probably the most significant person, and it is uh, this person, Augustine. Augustine. So let me give you some facts on his life here. Uh, or sometimes referred to as Augustine of Hippo, uh, because Hippo would be the town in which he was a bishop. He served as a bishop. Here's his uh, years of his life, 354 to 430. 354 to 430. So I'm going to spend the next few minutes uh, going through his life here. And we're going to look at um, a couple of the main controversies. One of the main controversies. He had three main controversies that he dealt with um, as a bishop. We'll look at more of those next week. Um, ne or in the next two weeks. Is he heretic or hero? Oh, <laughs> Augustine is a good guy. This is a good guy. Uh, Augustine was... Um, like I said, he was probably one of the most significant figures in early church history. As a matter of fact, I read a really cool quote here. And let me see if I can find it. Um, in terms of Augustine's legacy and his influence here. Um, especially for the reformers. The Catholics would, and we'll get into this probably next week. But uh, he's very influential in Catholic thought uh, because of... Uh, one of the main controversies that he dealt with was the nature of the church. And so some of what Augustine taught about the church was very influential in medieval Catholicism, which is not a great thing for, from a Reformed perspective, from a Reformed perspective. Uh, but what he taught about the other main controversy that he dealt with was uh, salvation, the issue of salvation, in particular, the nature of man and the nature of God's salvation. Uh, and in that case, he was tremendously influential in the Reformation. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is the quote. All the magisterial refor reformers sat at Augustine's feet. All the magisterial reformers sat at Augustine's feet. The Reformation protest was directed against the prevalence in the late medieval theology for all its professed allegiance to Augustine uh, of one equivalent or other of semi-Pelagianism, which we'll get to here in a moment. But all the reformers were tremendously influenced by Augustine. As a matter of fact, the, the, main, uh, the main driving factor in the Reformation, or at least one of the main arguments in the Reformation, was, uh, was not that they were trying to get something new, you know, or trying to get back to the Bible, and they were just appealing to Scripture. They did do that. But they were trying to reform the, the Catholic Church, and they kept appealing to the most influential person over the Catholic Church, over the doctrine of salvation, and that was Augustine. So, Calvin cites uh, Augustine, systematizes, um, probably even takes uh, Augustine even, even further. Luther was very influenced by Augustine. I mean, everybody was. Um, and uh, this, the colonel, there's another quote here. The colonel, 
or the root idea of Augustinianism, which is his, all of his, his whole thought, was everywhere the heart of the Protestant gospel. Uh, so huge influence over the church. So that's why we're going to look at him for a couple of weeks. Uh, actually, and somebody said, I don't know if it was one of my professors I read somewhere, that uh, the, the Reformation really was the triumph of, uh, of Augustine's doctrine of salvation over against his doctrine of the church. So, hugely influential. So let me give you a little uh, glimpse of the life of Augustine of Hippo. Uh, he was born in 354. He was born in modern-day Algeria. Okay, where's Algeria? Anybody know their geography really well? Where's Algeria? Across, across the, oh, yeah, I was thinking Albania. Yeah, Algeria is in Africa. Algeria, yep, it's in Africa. So stop for a moment here. One of the most, one of the most influential theologians in all of church history is an African. He's actually, he's native uh, to Africa, North Africa. Um, Athanasius was probably, was also from, we saw Athanasius. Is he the small guy? The, yeah, they call his nickname was the Black Dwarf. So right. I don't know if that's a reflection of his skin color or whatever, but but he also was from Africa. Uh, so when some some days they they talk about the lack of influence of African thought is in Christianity is really bizarre, actually, because some of the greatest theologians in church history are actually from Africa. Uh, so he's from North Africa. So Africa is very influential in Christianity. He was raised in a Christian home. Uh, I forget his father's name, but he had a. Uh, his father was an unbeliever, but his mother was very devout. Her name was Monica, and uh, he. <laughs> what? That's just like it's Monica. Monica. My name is son Augustine. Augustine's name was Frank. Frank, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, Where's that name from? Anyway. Monica. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's that's a. So her name was Monica. Well, and, and I think it, it actually is the reverse. It sounds like Monica is a modern name. Yeah. Uh, but that's actually an ancient name. And the reason why a lot of people are named Monica now or why it was a popular name is because of Augustine's mother. Oh, okay. Uh, she, he figure, she figures very prominently in his writings, especially one of his books called The Confessions, where it's kind of a spiritual and intellectual uh, autobiography. How many of you have heard, has heard of Augustine's Confessions? No? No. Oh, if you guys could get a copy of that. I think you can find it on Amazon. It's not very big. It's, it's basically his spiritual and intellectual autobiography written, most of it, as a prayer. So if you want to read really good prayers, you can uh, read uh, Augustine's Confessions. Uh, how many of you have heard the saying... Um, uh, our hearts are, the human heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. You've heard it? Mm -hmm. All of our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. That's a kind of a famous quote. That's from Augustine's Confessions, the very first chapter. So, um, so Augustine's Confessions. Um, and so Monica, back to Monica, she figures very prominently in his uh, autobiography because she fervently prayed for his salvation. Uh, she took him to church to get catechized. Um, 
His father, uh, oh, there's his father's name, Patricius. Uh, Patricius, not a Christian, more of a pagan, uh, but she was fervent. She really wanted to raise Augustine in the faith. Um, but he wanted to, from a very early age, did not want to have anything to do with Christianity. Uh, but his mother prayed for him over and over. So just as Monica is an, a, a great lesson on the power of praying mothers. The power of praying mothers. Um, when he is a teenager, now you got to keep in mind too back then, uh, he was a brilliant student. He was uh, wanted to pursue a, a career in oratory or rhetoric um, as a public teacher. The, ba the main equivalent I would give today would be kind of like a, a, not really a politician, but more like a lawyer slash politician where you're having to do a lot of talking and, te uh, you know, you're presenting, um, I kind of think of like a Jordan Peterson. He, he would be like kind of a, a rhetorician or an, an orator. He's like part philosopher, part teacher, and then part speaker. Um, maybe that's a bad illustration, but, but he had an aptitude for that, was brilliant, loved philosophy at an early age. And, you know, normally we, you, in, when you really figure out what your calling is occupationally and you go to school, it's in our late teens, early 20s. Back then it was much earlier, you know, in your early teens. So 16, 17, he was already in training to be an orator. And so uh, he, at 17 years old, he visits Carthage, would be, which would be the main large city there in North Africa. Uh, he ends up taking a mistress or a concubine. So he's living in, in sexual sin with this woman. He has a son with this woman. Um, at about 20 years old, he then really launches his career as a scholar and an, uh, and an academic. He's a teacher of rhetoric at Carthage, the main uh, school there, uh, at, at 20 years old. He was basically think of it as, as like a seminary, not a seminary, a college professor at 20 years old. He becomes a follower of um, Manichaeism, which we didn't cover Manichaeism, uh, but Manichaeism, Manichaeism was kind of like a, a philosophy slash religion and that there's there's two gods that that are it's a dualism and they're fighting each other out to see which there's a good god and a bad god and which one wins and what so was, he what was that called again manichaeism named after a guy manny m-a-n-i so he he thought it was very interesting intellectually at first uh but the um i think the main appeal was that he lived a very, very sinful lifestyle, and so, um, which I think is what is often the case, you might be interested in a religion because it might be intellectually stimulating, or it might be challenging, uh, but, but it's one that makes no moral demands on you. That's, man, Manichaeism didn't really make any kind of moral demands on you, um, and so... Perhaps that was what appealing to him, because it could engage into it intellectually, but I could still go on and, and uh, do, my, do my thing. So, and, uh, and I actually think that that's still quite uh, true today. I would say, how many of you have heard of like ex-evangelical? De you're deconstructing of your faith today? 
where somebody comes up and they go and they have a, I got to come out with my announcement that I'm no longer a Christian on my YouTube or Instagram or whatever like that. Yeah. Um, I don't have any hard data to back this up. Just some more an anecdotal. Uh, when people, when people who are growing up in like kind of the evangelical world and then say, I abandoned it, I leave it, I leaving Christianity. Um, and they'll, they'll cite things like, um, I just had problems with this kind of theology or to picture a God in this, that is this kind of way. Again, I don't have any data really to back this up other than to say that in most of those instances, I can almost guarantee you there's a moral failing or something in the background. And in some of the cases, you do see that, you know, famous guy writes a book, becomes popular megachurch pastor in his early 20s, writes a book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and then comes out and announces he's no longer a Christian. Then you come to find out he and his wife are separating, and you come to find they're having a divorce. Then you come to find, I mean, I can almost guarantee there's, there's some sort of moral failing in the background. So anyway, maybe, that's, maybe that was what was appealing for, uh, for Augustine. Um, a, a religious faith that is intellectually appealing but makes no demands on it. Uh, eventually, this is about 383, so 29 years old, he abandons um, Manichaeism. He, he's like, ah, I don't think this is really getting the answer. So he really starts to turn to Neoplatonism. He moves with his mistress and his son to Italy to go and teach there. Uh, he finds out that they don't pay very well. Um, so he goes and moves to Milan, Italy. The next year, he's 30 years old. He's a professor of rhetoric there. And while he's there, uh, he goes to hear um, the preaching of uh, a famous Christian preacher. So you got to think of somebody. This is somebody who's like, um, remember, he's a, he's a professor of rhetoric and oratory. And so he wants to go and find the best speakers that he can find to learn. And one of the best speakers was one of the Christian preachers at the church in Milan by a guy named Ambrose. St. Ambrose, you know, the Catholic Church calls him. So Ambrose. So he goes to Ambrose, and he was fascinated with how Ambrose taught the Bible and was fascinated how it made sense and helped him to overcome some of the obstacles he had about the Old Testament, in particular, some Old Testament passages. And Ambrose preached, and he preached against sexual sins even. And which is very fascinating that Augustine keeps going because he's living in a, in a sexual sinful relationship. And uh, so just, to, just as a reminder too, thinking about that, to, to be reminded that often today the presentation of the gospel uh, today begins with, uh, it, I would say it often starts with, Let's preach about God's love. God loves you. Um, we went to go see The Chosen movie. You guys, go, you guys heard about The Chosen series, I think. Yeah. Um, they had a Christmas special. It was in the movie theaters. The Chosen is a, a kind of a, how would you describe it, Janet? Film? It's a Depiction? Yeah. 
a lot of artistic license to it, but there's some research in the background to, you know, the Jewish background and stuff, but the dialogue is not like from scripture. It's, you know, so, but this, this summer or this uh, Christmas, they had, um, they had a, a special Christmas special and it was a one hour of kind of the normal episode with the life of Jesus, but then one hour of, uh, and actually I think it was backwards, right? Didn't it start with just a whole bunch of Christian artists singing various Christian songs and then it ended with those same Christian artists kind of sharing the gospel, but their gospel was basically, you know, God loves you, you know, and God loves you and God loves you. And of course he does love us. We just read that in Romans 5. Um, but often today, the presentations of the gospel don't really get beyond that God loves you. <laughs> the, you have, or before God loves you, like God's holy and you're a sinner. Those are the things that are often kind of missing in today's, uh, today's presentations. Uh, Ambrose preached, and he preached about sexual sins. And so, yet, uh, yet Augustine was still going to and attending his, his, uh, his church. Uh, Augustine has a very famous cons uh, a conversion story. I don't know exact, the exact de details of this. Is it coming from what he's hearing in his preaching? Is he, he's starting to read more of the scriptures that he had rejected as a, as a teenager. Uh, but now here he is, what is uh, 386? So that what's it put him about 32 years old. Remember he left home about 16, 17. Uh, so he's been off living in the world for 20 years, 20 years, and goes to hear this Ambrose preach. Starts to come back to listening to the scriptures again. Uh, is attending his church and ends up becoming convicted of his um, of his moral failings. And he is, the way he tells it, and this is, again, in his confessions, he tells it he's in a garden or a backyard. Think of it as somebody's backyard. And, um, and he's just sitting there walking around distraught in agony, really becoming aware of his moral failings and his, the fact that he's living in sin. And this has to come from a couple of sources. One has come from the work of the Holy Spirit and from the scriptures, and from the preaching of Ambrose, must have to, as having this effect on him. And so as he's in the middle of doing all of these things, and he's there with all of his books and his writings, uh, he hears the words, tola lege, tola lege, which is the Latin phrase for take up and read, take up and read. So apparently some kids are playing next door, and this is a part of a kid's game that's going on, and the kids are yelling this, tola lege, tola lege. And he takes that as kind of a sign to read. So he goes over to a stack of books that's there, and one of them is, a, is a, a folio of Paul's letters. And he opens up the folio, and it goes right to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, go ahead and turn there. Romans 13, verses 16 and 17, I think. No. Uh, 13 and 14? 13 and 14. So he opens up the book, Romans. 13, 13. He's, and it says this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, 
not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's from that very, that very reading of the scriptures, he says, I didn't even need to read any further. It was as if I was uh, completely reborn and recreated as a new person just in reading that. And he had, this is a pretty magnificent conversion story. Um, which just again speaks to the power of the scriptures, doesn't it? To affect change. It really is God's word. God's word contains the gospel here and the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And often you'll hear a lot of reform Theologians talk about word and spirit, word and spirit. You're taking the written word of God and the spirit of God who authored, who inspired the authors to write it. Uh, the word of God and the spirit of God working in conjunction to perform a miracle, to take somebody who's actually dead and then make them alive again. And this was a profound, uh, had a profound effect on, on Augustine. His conversion uh, had a great deal of effect on his uh, theology because from that point on he had placed a great emphasis on the operation of God in his salvation. That it really was just the power of God in his salvation and that uh, conversion was was a, an action by God that was so overwhelming that, that he could not really even resist it. And this becomes a very important uh, thing in his, in his theology as we'll see here in a minute. Um, so then he begins writing books. The next year, 387, he is baptized uh, in Milan by Ambrose. Uh, the next year, he returns to Carthage. Uh, his on the journey back on one of the port cities as they're waiting for the trip, his mother Monica uh, dies, and his, um, his son dies on the travel. I mean, so here is first year as a Christian. His mother dies, and his, and his son dies. Um, some Christian teachers that want to tell you that you can become a Christian and your life will get better are, are blowing smoke. And I have no knowledge of history, of, of church history at all. He ends up becoming a monk as he moves back to Africa, he eventually is ordained as a priest, and again, he's just learning and reading and studying. He's reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures almost daily. It's kind of a little like a study group. He makes like almost like a seminary there. Um, and then in 395, by the way, think about that again too. Back to the praying mother thing. 17, 16, 17 leaves home is not a Christian, rejects the Christian faith. Um, and at 30, how old is he in his conversion? 86, 386, 31, 17, 15 years, 15 years, mother's praying for him. Um, in 395, the Bishop of Hippo dies and how it worked back then is you really didn't have a say. If people voted, 
like if the church got together and they voted, they said, uh, this is who we pick as the bishop. I mean, you didn't even have to put your name as a candidate in. You, you know, you didn't have to go, well, let's find some willing participants. Maybe some people want to volunteer and then we could, we'll vote on the selection. No, they would just say, we want this person to do it. He didn't even want to be a bishop. He didn't want to be a bishop at all. Uh, but they all voted unanimously, said, no, it needs to be Augustine. He's going to be the bishop. And so he's like, okay. Literally being forced almost into becoming a bishop, which is basically like the leader of a church. So he becomes uh, bishop in 395. And um, immediately he starts to write. He takes on major issues in the church. He's brilliant, of course. Uh, five years later, he completes his book, Confessions, which he had started years before. And that's in uh, for the year 400. Again, I encourage you guys to read that. Could be a good devotional. Just read a few pages a day. The chapters aren't long. Maybe the chapters are a page or two. Um, the... In, so he's Bishop of, um, of Hippo at 395, completes his book Confessions at 400. In the year 410, um, what happens in 410? Does anybody remember? Romans got sacked, didn't they? That's right. That's right. Do you know by who? The, I've got the, it written down here, but I One of the either Goths or Ostrogoths or. Yeah, like the, the Visigoths. Visigoths. Yeah, I, I, know, I don't know what the difference is between all of them. <laughs> The Goths, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths. but uh, Actually, Goths would be for all of them. But Visigoths are Goths, Ostrogoths are Goths. Goths. One's over here, one's over here. Yeah, and I even tried to figure out where all they came from. Like, the Visigoths would be like modern-day Romania, but then they settled in, after they conquered Rome, they settled in, like, Spain. So I don't know what the lineage is for, for any of that, but... But yeah, Rome is uh, sacked by Alaric the Visigoth, the king of the Visigoths. Now, that's a tremendous thing here because Rome was the eternal city. Rome was going to live forever. Rome was, Rome was the, the leading capital, uh, the, the capital city of the empire, of the Roman Empire, for, what, 500 years? Over 500 years. Oh, yeah. And so Roman influence for that long was tremendous. It was um, mind-blowing to just think that actually Rome could be conquered by somebody else. It just is so far from, from, people's, uh, from people's thoughts. And so, um, you know, of course, Augustine, uh, he ends up writing a book a couple years after this in the aftermath of the Visigoth invasion of Rome, and he writes a book called The City of God. That's So Confessions is probably one of his most well-known books. His other main book that's still in print, published today, is called The City of God, which was uh, an apologetic against the pagans of Rome because the pagans of, of Rome said, you know the reason why Rome fell, don't you? So it's Christians. The gods, the gods are angry. The, the gods that Rome had been built on, you know, their whole pantheon of deities and stuff like that. You know, what would happen was when, as, as it became Christian and the gods are angry and that's why Rome was sacked. Well, Augustine is writing an apologetic from a Christian perspective against that. And so the first half of that book is an apologetic against the pagans for blaming Christianity for the fall of Rome. Uh, but the second half 
is more of a, like a Christian philosophy of history. Um, back then, it was common to think of history as just coming in cycles. Same thing happened, you know, there'd just be cycles. Augustine really said, no, it's more of a timeline. It's going somewhere. History's going somewhere. Um, and in part of that argument, he talks about the two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And the city of man's going to fall. It's built on human pride. It's built on human arrogance. It's going to end up being destroyed. And that's why Rome fell. But the city of God is eternal. It's the heavenly city. And so that's a very interesting one. And it's a, I think that's probably a, a timely book for us to be familiar with um, today. Because I think uh, some parallels could be drawn. I think it would be very easy to think the United States can't, it, it will be here forever. It's never going to go away. Um, you guys, it could. <laughs> the unthinkable happened with Rome. Rome was taken over by the Visigoths. Uh, the, the same thing could happen here, um, and so it might be inst instructive for us to, to heed Augustine's word as he had to try and explain. Here, let me explain to you why Rome fell and why the city of man is going to fall and why we need to be, uh, emphasize, emphasize the city of God. Um, that's in 413. He writes that book. 420, he completes, uh, well, he's written several other books. And then in 430, uh, the Vandals end up uh, attacking North Africa, North Africa, and he dies during the siege of the Vandals in Hippo in North Africa. So that's Augustine. Um, any questions on Augustine? No? Any thoughts? Anything in that that kind of triggered a... Where's the, what, what is the Roman Catholic Church at this point? Anything? Yeah. Uh, at this point, it would have been just a Catholic Church. You know, they wouldn't have had the distinction between a Roman... Uh, you don't have a real, you know, distinction between East and West yet. Um, is that what you're going to, well, at least it wasn't, wouldn't be Roman Catholic Church, but it would be Catholic. But there was, there was the church framework there of, yeah, because he was, he was a priest, right? I mean, yeah, he was a priest and then ended up becoming a bishop which would be kind of like a pastor, basically like the, the main pastor over a church. Um, but so they did, so you're talking more like the, the hierarchy. Like was, was the Vatican there yeah. when Rome got sacked? I don't think the Vatican was. Um, they weren't that organized yet to where it was an institution where they had control over all the other churches? And... Not like it does in the Middle Ages, yeah. I mean, I think that there was some uh, the structure. There is a hierarchy, uh, but not... Uh, I'm trying to think, really, when did the Catholic Church kind of retroactively make um, the seat of Peter as Bishop of Rome? You know, Because uh, Ambrose was 
you said he was a saint, right? For the in the Roman in Catholic the Church. in the in the Catholic Church, but yeah. But they sainted him. To, yes, okay. yeah, that would come much later, right? We'll get into more of the church part with one of Augustine's controversies with with the Donatists or Donatists. I don't want to say Donatists; it makes me hungry. The Donatists. Um, we'll get into that next week, and so hopefully, maybe some of that will get clear. But but in terms of the hierarchy that we usually associate with the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation, that's not quite. Um, in full bloom yet. Some of it comes as a result of Augustine and his uh, issues with the with the Donatists. So um, we'll handle that next week. Tonight, I wanted to look at his main controversy with a guy named uh, Pelagius. Pelagius. Um. I have the years here somewhere. Uh, and Pelagius would be uh, known for his view, which we will call Pelagianism. Pelagian or Pelagianism. That word sound familiar to anybody? Pelagian? Uh, there's a related one too here. Semi-Pelagian. So you've heard the word Pelagian and semi-Pelagian before? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Anybody, so you've heard the word, anybody want to take a stab at what they, what that means? I believe it was, uh, it has to do with, um, Pelagian I think said that there was no original sin and man did have the goodness, ability to choose God on his own. Yep, that's, that's exactly right. Yep. Yeah, Pelagius, was, he was actually a monk. Uh, he was from um, Britain. So a British monk. Uh, let me see what years he was alive. I think he died right before, he was born right before and died right before um, Augustine, I believe. They were very close in age. Well, he died in 420, so he died about 10 years before uh, Augustine. Let me see if I can find, I don't see his birth. I know it's really stuff. Yeah, okay. Um, give you a little bit here of uh, Pelagius. He's British monk. He ends up going to Rome. Uh, he sees a great deal of licentiousness in the church at Rome uh, and he's trying to figure out what what were some of the issues there and he ends up coming across for some I don't remember exactly how he ends up coming across something from uh, from Augustine's confessions Let's see if I can find it here um, yes right here um, he reads something in Augustine's Confessions, which, which apparently at this time was very influential in, um, in Rome and Milan and in other places. 
but again, keep in mind, this would be, he comes to Rome, I think, in 4, 405. Augustine had become a bishop. Uh, when did he become, um, what was it, 395? He became uh, bishop at Hippo. So we're talking five years into his ministry, and yet his writings were, were all over, um, all over the place. Uh, but he reads this line from Confessions, Book 10, uh, Chapter 39. And this is what uh, Augustine writes. And my whole hope is only in thy exceeding great mercy. Give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. Um, and then a little bit further, he says, O love, whoever burnest and art uh, never quenched. O charity, my God, kindle me. Uh, kindle me, I, thou commandest contency, uh, contency, I don't know what that word is, but then he repeats again, give what thou commandest and command what thou will. So uh, he's saying here that, well, one, he's, this is one of many places where he speaks about that the only, the only hope I have of being saved at all is purely on God's mercy, that he actually uh, selected and saved me. This is Augustine, right? This is Augustine. Yes, and this is what he's writing in his confessions. And then he makes this uh, claim several times in there that, that, um, that God will make a command, but then will provide what he commands. So if he commands you to repent and believe, he grants repentance and faith. Um, I'll read it again. Give what thou commandest and command what thou will. So uh, Pelagius, he's offended by this. And so he goes on attack basically against this kind of idea. And his teaching mainly is in a couple of uh, key points. One, he denied uh, original sin. And original sin is... Um, is the inherited guilt that all human persons have because of Adam's sin. Okay? Adam is not just setting a pattern for us and that when we sin, we now become sinners. Uh, as we read in Romans 5, the, the pattern is uh, Adam has sinned and we all now inherit his guilt. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's what original sin is. Augustine strongly argues for this idea of original sin, inherited guilt in Adam. Uh, Pelagius outright denies that. Uh, he denied that God's grace was essential for salvation. As a matter of fact, he even kind of redefines grace. A lot of medieval Catholicism is very influenced by uh, Pelagius' idea, ideas that grace is the little bit that God gives us and that if we really take a hold of it and use it rightly, that becomes kind of an impetus for us to, to do the good works that we need to do and have the faith that we need to have. So grace is like an infusion of, of energy. It gives you like a spiritual kick. Um, and Augustine's understanding of grace, which is, which by the way, that Pelagius' understanding or defining of grace that way is pretty novel. Um, that it was kind of a new idea. The typical understanding of God's grace was unmerited favor, God's just gift. 
of gift of salvation to to a sinner who did nothing to receive, nothing to deserve or earn or merit it at all. Um, and so Augustine even goes so far as to say God's grace is not even essential for salvation. And then he also, number three, he preached that sinless perfection through our own free will apart from grace was possible. That perfect obedience, it's not easy, I didn't say it was easy, but perfect obedience to God's, God's moral law uh, was possible for fallen humans. It's funny, Steve sent me a, a gif yesterday. Was that yesterday? Yeah, right before, <laughs> right before church. And I was like, that is so funny because I am totally going to be talking about that tomorrow. Uh, let me see if I find it here real quick. This, this is, uh, if you could substitute Paul for Augustine, but basically because Augustine was just teaching what, what Paul was teaching, uh, Pelagius says, man is basically good, and Paul says, at sinning. <laughs> if you substitute Augustine for Paul, that's exactly the main controversy that we're dealing with here. Pelagius was saying, man is basically good. His, his faculties to be able to do and follow the moral will of God is still intact. And Augustine says, no way. How did he back up this thing? Uh, did, did he see it around him or in himself? <laughs> yeah, that's a good... Uh, he threw out most of the songs. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, there is no one good. Not even one. I mean, like it says. Like, Maybe he was never married. <laughs> yeah. Never married. Well, he wasn't. He was a monk. Oh, yeah. There you go. There you so go. Never got saw a little bit of. Laws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how the Catholic Church they have all of this of, you know, indulgences or yeah. the balance of do more good than bad. Yeah. Yeah, to get on that, you know, because. Like, here's, you know, righteousness, you know, perfect righteousness. And uh, from the original, you know, so here's, we'll get to this here a little bit too. We'll put Adam here. Adam was possible. It's possible. Yeah, we're going to get to that here in a moment. Um, but Adam fell, so then you've got this, you know, so he could get pretty bad, but maybe he could be pretty good. If you do some indulgences, you could work your way up. But over through your whole life, you will never attain perfection. And the Catholic Church idea. This is more maybe closer to semi, the semi-Pelagian. But Pelagius thought, you know, it's, you know, it's actually possible for you to get kind of up there. Um, but then you die, then you go to purgatory, and if you do well enough in purgatory, then you could be saved. You know, that that's the Catholic understanding. Very influenced by, by uh, Pelagius. So Augustine, on the other hand, was uh, he stressed the absolute and total depravity of human beings after the fall. You've heard of total depravity? You've heard of TULIP, right, from the Canons of Dort? You know, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Um, that's not a Reformation thing. That's, that's going back to Augustine. Augustine argued very strongly in the total depravity of human beings 
uh, after the fall. And he's the one that uh, Pepe just uh, alluded to that here a second ago of the, uh, the classifications for our state in Adam. And so let me give you these here real quick. Um, so, so Adam, pre-fall, pre-fall Adam, uh, Augustine said that Adam was in a state of, um, it was of passe, picare, okay, picare would be the Latin for sin, and it's Spanish, is that the Spanish word for sin, comes from that? It has some letters more, pecar is in Spanish, pecar. How do you, spe how do you spell it? P-E-C-A-R? Yeah. Okay, so it's the word sin in Spanish is picar. So it comes from the Latin. Mm -hmm. Okay, so passe which is it's possible. It was possible for Adam to sin in the garden. But it was also passe non picare. What does that mean? For Adam. Not it was possible for Adam to have not sinned in the garden. Because gave him a wife. <laughs> Twice in. Clearly. To, to Joe's earlier point. Here we go. Wow, he has solved everything. <laughs> uh, so so pre-fall, but then with the fall, what happens to the state of, of Adam then? Uh, this is now no longer possible, right? It's not possible to no longer sin. So it's possible to sin. He said it's now non-passe, non-picare. It's not possible for man to not sin. This is contra Pelagius, right? Because he said, actually, mankind's basically good. He says, no, we're in a state now of non-passe, non-picare. <clears throat> And then it ends up, lastly, in glorification. Which is now we are, when we get to, uh, when we are united with Christ, we are fully a new creation in a resurrected body, then it will be, um, be non-passe picare. You thought about that? Have you thought about what, like heaven, how nice heaven will be? Uh, uh, eternal life with, with God is not like floating around in cool clothes and on clouds and playing harps. It will actually be a state of sinless perfection. And it will not be possible to sin. Amen. Yeah. We can still have harps if you want. We have harps and I want to have an electric electric harp. Electric harp. <laughs> Golden cajon. <laughs> so yeah, let me read to you to you some of the definitions here. I think I got passe picari, non passe picari. Let me read to a couple of them here. Will that because we're will that be because we're in the presence of Christ? 
Uh, yeah. Presence of Christ. But what about the angels that were cast from heaven? They were in the presence of Christ. Well, and so the angels, well, uh, Well, the, the angels, well, let's go back to, in order to answer that question, let's go back. So what, what is it then, what is it that caused this, or, or what is it that made the, that these both possible? Choice. Choice. Right? Free will. Free will. <coughs> Free will of the human beings to do that, right? Um, so what happens to our will, though, here in a state of non-posse non-pakari? It's broken. Do we still have free will? Can we choose not to sin? It's one option. Yeah, we can't choose not to sin. Can we? Can. I don't think we can. There's at least something. I can choose not to hate you. <laughs> that would be a smart move. <laughs> right, but we still have a choice. Exactly. exactly. You can choose not to cheat on your wife. It's true. She has a silver looking ring. But we can't do that to perfection. Right. At some point, there's a, we're there's going a limit. to it. Yes. Yeah. Is it possible, or do we have within us in our wills to. Uh, to do we have the ability in our wills to to where it is not possible to not sin? No. Did I say that right? Or that it is possible to not sin? That it is impossible to sin. That it's impossible to not sin. To not sin. So there's so there's something wrong with our wills. A permanent a permanent uh, um, disability. In our wills, right? We'll get to Martin Luther writes about this in the bondage of the will. Like our wills are in bondage to our sin nature. Luther being very influenced by Augustine, also by Paul. Okay, so let's go back to Romans 5 again and let's just read that. That this is the guilt that comes to uh, all, human, all human persons. Verse 12, Romans 5, 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Um, verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, trespass, Death reigned through that one man, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reigned through, those, through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Augustine is reading these, these passages, and there's other ones like this in 1 Corinthians 2, that connects all human beings to, to Adam, and that our wills are now in bondage, uh, in bondage and slavery. That, that's uh, perfectionism, sinless perfectionism is just not possible. Um, for, for um, now, I'm saying this at least. I'm, not, I'm saying it's not possible for the Christian either, but it's not possible for an, uh, 
apart from the grace of uh, apart from the grace of God. It's not possible in man's unregenerate state. I'll put it that way. That's what Pelagius was arguing. He was arguing it was it was possible for us to become uh, sinless. Uh, oh, go ahead. How? What was his argument? Uh, uh, it's a combination of things, but I think from um, I, I would have to go back and read some of some of his argumentation before, and then Augustine's challenges back. But largely, it was the the idea that these commands in the Bible for us to do to Put, put away sin, to stop doing these things, he took those as being within our capacity to do, just as, a, as an image bearer of God. So he would argue, like, there, there's commands in Scripture for us to, to not sin. So, therefore, we must have have this ability to not sin. Which is a good point, Right? Because, you know, then you have, well, then why are those commands there? Um, and is that to a person? I think he just brought into that the idea that this was, it was within the capacity of man created in the image of God that he should be able to do this. He should be able to fulfill these commands. So he didn't believe in predestination either? Predestination? No. That he did not, he would reject that idea too. Yeah. And that was something that, that Augustine stressed quite strongly. And again, he's very, very influenced by his conversion. Because he would never, he, he really, looking back at his conversion, he would have thought, I didn't really choose this. I was so distraught over my sin, I thought I had no hope or anything. But it was hearing the hope of, you know, the call of this, this gospel that he realized. Yeah. So in a way, this thing is still living in even Christian circles, though. Yeah. Can, can give, flesh well, it out, give me some examples. Well, I'm not thinking, I think just anyone who won't believe in predestination has a little bit of it. Has a little bit of the the uh, the semi-Pelagian kind of thing, because as it, at its root, it has the idea that we are able to choose. Maybe is that it? Yeah, you don't need God's mercy. You can do it by your own strength. Yeah. Like you just need like the the little sprinkle of grace, and then you just grab it like like yeah. you said it, and then like now. I'm yeah. Yeah. What was Pelagius's Pelagius Pelagius background? Like we know Augustine was, you know, born in Africa, he was raised with God, his mom was a Christian, but like you have a you have a redemption story there. But with Pelagius it seems like you mm. don't have a redemption story at all. Like he was almost like an evangelical now, right? <laughs> an ex evangelical. Yeah. Always in the church. Dad was a preacher, blah, blah, blah. Woe is me, you know, I'm, I'm so cool, and I got to have something, you know, more than nothing. Yeah. Um, so, I think, what was his background? Do we know anything yeah. more about him besides the 
there's I don't know a, a whole lot more to his background other than the main parts that he comes up in his controversy. But I'm sure that that's probably um, I think you're you're probably pretty close to the idea that there's um, there was a cultural there there the church is old enough now that you could have a cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. You could you could go into the the monk thing as an unregenerate person right you you had often had stories like that you would go it was an occupation it was a career um you know i could be connected to the church i grew up going to the church and you know become a monk Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if that was exactly the case for pelagius but it was for luther Mm -hmm. martin luther was was a monk right and he didn't understand the gospel he was terrified of god he actually hated God. He was a monk and he kind of hated God. He was so scared of him. And then he realized the gospel. So I would it um so at least the similarity with Luther there is that he had, would have at least just the cultural, sure, I could I'll be a monk. Right. Yeah. We talked about the Enneagram. We had one of the things at the Enneagram. And remember, one of the things that they say in the Enneagram is not, not a personality. Again, it's not a, there's, there's nine different personalities and you're one of the nine. Uh, if, you, if you bring that up, to, if you're really making the next steps in the Enneagram, they're, uh, they're, they're going to reject that idea. They're like, no, no, you've got to understand the Enneagram. You have to do the work of the Enneagram to work back to your true self, to who you were before, uh, before sin entered the world. We, I read the sections from the, one of the main evangelical ones. Um, he talks about, like, to the real you that you were before you were corrupted by sin as a small child. I mean, that, that's Pelagian. To say it's possible within you to go back to, um, you just need a grace. And here's the grace. Look at this tool. You follow this tool to go back. and, um, But to go back to the real you before sin entered in the world. Well, when was that? From an Augustinian perspective or Pauline perspective, there was no time, you know, that you could go back to, when, when I could go back to before sin was, was in me. So, so yeah, to, to Pepe's point, Pelagianism is still there. It's still here. And this really becomes the next step in this, this heretics and heroes, right? We've looked at the nature of Jesus Christ. Is he fully God? Is he fully man? Remember, we saw all the denials. We deny that he's fully God. Or we deny that he's God. We deny that he's fully God. We deny the, the distinction of the natures. Where We deny that he's fully man. Um, we deny that, the, that there are three different uh, persons in one nature. We deny that there's two natures in one person. You know, yet all of those denials. And now, 
the, the shift, the main heresy that, that uh, the main controversy and heresy that Augustine had to be thrust into and deal with was now was shifting from the doctrine of Christ to the doctrine of human beings. To the doctrine of sin. Right? How bad is sin? The Pelagius idea is that sin is, is bad, but our, our wills and our ability to choose that which is good apart from grace is still intact. That's what Pelagius would say. Augustine says it's not possible. We are so corrupt and uh, depraved in heart that apart from the operation of God's grace alone, we would not be saved. He kind of minimizes God's holiness. Yeah. To think that mankind can be that holy. Yeah. Yep, that's a good way to put it. Minimizes God's, so it's, it's maximizing our ability and minimizing God's, God's holiness. It's making us equal with God. We can, he has taken away our sin through Christ, but they're saying you can take your own sin away by just not sinning. Hmm. So you really don't even need Christ at that point. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's what they would believe. And I think that's what we we see that today. So you're little gods. You can do this. You can you can heal. Yeah. You can you can you know um, whatever. You you just can do whatever God does. Mm. You know. Yeah. So just essentially pushing him out the door. And, but if it was truly that case, we wouldn't be here today at this point. Like mm. if we truly could have our will and not sin. We would have figured things out by now, mm. you know, after, I mean, since Adam, right? I mean, that's, so. Yeah. Which of, the, which of this, this teaching is, is new for you or is challenging for you? story already without even reading it but yeah. redemption stories are my favorite especially when it becomes a great part of church history and a story of another human finding Christ mm. that is the best part of this whole thing Pelagius can you know do his thing but. <laughs> I think I've always heard the name Augustine but it was confusing to me, I guess, because I would be listening to trusted apologetics or whatever, and they would say something bad about him. But then I would hear other people say something good about him. And, and Do you remember what they would say that was bad? I'm curious. I'm, I'm not sure. But they don't... Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. I hear, I hear that with Aquinas, too. Yeah. Some people say, especially apologetics-wise, yeah. we appeal to Aquinas, uh, which he comes a little bit <clears throat> seven or eight hundred years later, I think. So, six hundred years later. 
He's the other main figure. Augustine to Aquinas is the another big one, but that's weeks away in our class. Was there someone? So we're getting pretty close to the Reformation here, right? Oh no, we're not. No. We're a long ways I'm, away. Yeah. Fifteen, seventeen. Duh. Yeah. Anyway, um, I was just thinking, what, like, who's going to follow Ulfinga? Yeah. Thinking five seventeen. Almost there. I know we're going to spend, you know, the next so eight weeks to do from the year roughly 400 to 1350. We got to cover a lot there, um, but there's a lot of that's kind of dark though. And, this was the dark ages but this is this is kind of interesting for me because I just finished reading uh, a book called Seeking Allah Finding Jesus oh yeah Nabil Qureshi Nabil Qureshi yeah awesome book yeah awesome book I, I learned so much about Islam and what they what they believe and what they believe about Christianity and and how he investigated I mean, methodically investigated history and the doctrine and the theology, and he was just blown away. Wow. Have you, have you read that book? I did. It's, a little, it's been years ago now. Uh, has anybody else read that? Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus? Which Muhammad was in the 500s, so we're, we're yeah. coming up on... He, that's going to be a part of this class. Okay. We'll spend a couple weeks in Islam. Yeah. It was really interesting. Yeah. Bring that book with you. I'll let you know when we get when I we read have it. Well, e, it was an e-book. Oh, okay. I can I can grab it again on the, on the library. Oh, okay. Yeah, because we'll we'll deal with Islam. Uh, you know, it's strange to think you know where Augustine was. How much of North Africa was Christianized? You know, major. Mm-hmm. You know, remember what what I had erased earlier up here. One of the main. There were two main theological schools in the first couple hundred years. One was in Antioch, modern-day like Turkey, and the other one was in Alexandria in modern-day Egypt. I mean, that was one of the main Christian theological schools. There was libraries there. A lot of the manuscript, Greek manuscripts and stuff were there. Um, Carthage, all of these things. And then where's, where's the Christian presence in North Africa today. Yeah, I mean, and that's way, you gotta go pretty far away there. But like North Africa, Egypt, uh, Libya, uh, Algeria, Tunisia, all major Christian things, gone. But you still have uh, massive cathedrals in, in Italy and Germany and in France. You know, why is that? Islam. You're going to find out. They were, they're not too nice. So, it becomes a huge part of the Christian story in Africa. So, yeah, they said that, um, like, the early United States, when we would do trade with, um, you know, whatever, Italy, Africa, whatever, there was a blockade between Spain and, like, Morocco there that they would the Islam or Muslims would hold ransom the ships mm-hmm. yeah. you'd have to pay them to get through 
Yeah. Point. Even at that point in time, they were quote unquote terrorists or, you know, whatever they would, they wouldn't call it that at the time, but pirates or whatever and would take, seize ships that were full of, you know, goods and take them. Yeah. Out, so. Wouldn't that be the bar- the barbers? The barbers? Yeah, yeah. 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 I read the, just a snippet of that. Yeah. That that Brian Kilmeade book? Was that the book you read? Uh, no. Maybe. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> I read stuff all the time. Any other thoughts on this? We're going to stay in Augustine for a while, too, so we're going to come back to, we might touch on some of these these things here, but mostly next time we're going to be looking at uh, City of God and also his the doctrine of the church. Any other final questions, points? It Quick. feels like a lot of people try to live the Plagian or semi-Plagian, even today, like the trying to get to the righteousness. I'm just gonna have to, if I could just have a little bit more self-control or self-discipline, I can just be better, I can try to be good. Like it's this constant mindset of um, trying to get this to this level. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a perfection, but good enough. Yeah. It seems pretty pervasive today in the mindset of about their actions and morality. And are you speaking of uh, Christians or non-Christians? Because that does kind of affect it, right? You know, they... I think both. Yeah? I would agree, both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because for the Christian, you know, is perfection possible in this life? No. Actually, in Romans 7, um, the... Um, Augustine originally thought, his original understanding of Romans 7, which is the why do I do what I do when I don't want to do what I, you know, that whole passage, if you're familiar with Romans 7, he, he understood that to be man in his pre, um, pre-Christian state. And, it, and later, he, get, he reforms his thinking, and he goes, no, actually, I think that that's describing the struggle that Christians have with their ongoing struggle to sin, you know, the old man. So, um, but that, that comes into play with the perfection. Like, well, no, perfection's never really even possible. Um, but he gives us the spirit. He gives us the power, the ability to do um, that which is pleasing to him. We're just not possible for us to do it. The only way that would be possible is if when we were saved, God took our sin nature away. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's passages in Scripture that say that we are to, to be putting those things to death, right? It's still there. They, they, the Scripture acknowledges, hey, it's still there. It's still going to be there. Um but the book says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So he knows we're going to continue to sin. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Because he gives us the provision. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's pray. Somebody want to pray? Close us.